0: Welcome to Enchanted. Before we get rolling, please enjoy this message from this episode's sponsor, The Haunting, Unearthly, and Paranormal Stories Podcast.
1: Welcome to The Haunting, Unearthly, and Paranormal Stories Podcast. Each week will be a different event, whether paranormal or some other strange and unexplained happening. Maybe even a haunting located near you will be examined and relayed to you. These events and stories are based on events and have been given to us by the people who experience these events in their own lives. These weekly journeys we take together will lead us down deserted roads, into the deep and dark forests, and through the doors of buildings we should not enter. Pull up a chair and join me as we take a step into the unknown here on the Haunting, Unearthly, and Paranormal Stories podcast. Just remember, believe those that you choose, or believe in none. It is your choice!
0: You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. If you're fortunate enough to visit Italy at Christmas time, you might notice that the excitement of the Christmas holiday stays with Italian children well past New Year's Day. The 12 days of Christmas last from December 25th to Epiphany on the 6th of January. In Italy, Christmas Day has traditionally been reserved for religious observations and gathering with family, and gifts have to wait until the end of the Christmas season. On the eve of Epiphany, Good children receive candy, toys, and other presents. Bad children receive carbone, coal. Nowadays, most of Italy's children receive presents with a little bit of coal, because who's good all the time? In the form of carbone dolce, or carbone di zucchero, candy made from vegetable charcoal or food coloring and crystallized sugar. But the figure handing out gifts and filling stockings isn't a jolly man in a red coat riding in a sleigh. Instead, it's a friendly witch, La Befana, an old woman who flies about on her broomstick delivering presents and judgment to Italy's children. In this episode, I bring you three stories of witches and witchcraft in Italy, but with a twist. Far from the frightening images of witches we usually see in pre-modern and early modern Europe— These witches are gift-givers, protectors, and liberators. I give you the Good Witches of Italy. The tradition of La Befana in Italy dates back to at least the 8th century. But her story begins much earlier than that. In fact, her story begins in the 1st century, with the birth of Jesus. As tradition holds, when Jesus was born in a humble manger in Bethlehem, a brilliant star shone in the sky, signaling the birth of the Savior of humankind. Far to the east, three astrologers, or magi, "'observed the star and set out to find the newborn king "'and bring him precious gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. "'On the way, these three wise men, as they're sometimes called, traveled through a small village and, being wise, "'stopped to ask for directions. "'Looking around the village, they saw a woman "'sweeping dust from her home with an old, frayed broom. "'The woman was clearly elderly, "'with a wrinkled, careworn face and white hair, But she seemed friendly enough. If the sudden appearance of three richly-dressed foreigners riding camels through her street startled her, she didn't show it. She merely smiled and bade them welcome. The Magi asked the old woman if she knew where they might find the newborn Messiah, the Son of God. Well, of course, the old woman didn't know. How could she? But she invited the three travelers into her home, fed them, and let them shelter there for the night. The three magi were pleased to see that the woman's home was immaculate, which would have surprised no one who knew her. After all, she enjoyed a reputation as the best housekeeper in the village, with the cleanest and most welcoming home. Before they left, the magi asked the woman if she would like to join them and see the Christ child for herself. She thanked the kind travelers, but refused. After all, she had her home to look after and chores to do. The three men left, and the old woman went about her day. Soon, however, she regretted that she hadn't gone with them. She packed up some gifts for the infant, grabbed her broom, and took off to find them. She never did catch up with them, so just to be sure that her gifts make it to the infant Jesus eventually, she flies about on the eve of Epiphany, leaving candy and toys for every child she finds. In return, Italian families leave out wine with a dish of favorite snacks and decorate their houses with the image of a friendly witch flying on a broomstick. Of all the places in Italy where witches were said to have once lived, few can rival the northern city of Milan – In the 17th century, the Second Plague Pandemic, part of a series of waves of bubonic plague beginning in the 14th century and ending in the 18th, swept through Milan, which then served as the major epicenter of plague in Italy. Between 1629 and 1631, the Great Plague of Milan raged through northern and central Italy, resulting in hundreds of thousands of deaths. The plague likely began in northern France in 1623 but spread quickly over the next decade thanks to the movement of troops and refugees during the Thirty Years' War. By October 1629, it had reached Milan, where it would kill 60,000 people, nearly half of the city's population. By 1630, the plague traveled to Venice, where the number of recorded deaths exceeded 46,000, or about one-third of the population crushing Venice's economy and initiating its downfall as an economic power. From Milan and Venice, it spread to Bologna, Modena, Parma, and Florence. In his 1827 novel I Promessi Sposi, or The Betrothed, Alessandro Manzoni describes the many ways citizens and authorities in Milan reacted to the steady spread of plague in 1629, The description of citizens' reactions is both familiar and chilling. Manzoni writes, From time to time, now in this, now in that quarter, someone was seized with the contagion, someone was carried off with it, and the very infrequency of the cases contributed to lull all suspicions of pestilence, and confirmed the generality more and more in the senseless and murderous assurance that plague it was not, and never had been. For a moment. Many physicians, too, echoing the voice of the people, was it in this instance also the voice of heaven, derided the ominous predictions and threatening warnings of the few, and always had at hand the names of common diseases to qualify every case of pestilence which they were summoned to cure, with what symptom or token soever it evinced itself. Slowly but surely, the citizens of Milan began to realize that this might, in fact, be the plague. Manzoni describes the slow dawning of realization this way. First, then, it was not the plague. Absolutely not. By no means. The very utterance of the term was prohibited. Then it was pestilential fevers. The idea was indirectly admitted in an adjective. Then it was not the true nor real plague, that is to say it was the plague, but only in a certain sense, not positively and undoubtedly the plague, but something to which no other name could be affixed. Lastly, it was the plague, without doubt, without dispute, but even then another idea was appended to it, the idea of poison and witchcraft, which altered and confounded that conveyed in the word they could no longer express." The worst stretch of the epidemic in Milan came in spring of 1630, after exceptions to quarantine policies were made in order to celebrate the season of Carnivale, complete with its traditional processions and large gatherings. The rate of infection had slowed dramatically after the city put its sanitation and quarantine measures in place, so after a few months, the people demanded the measures be lifted so they could enjoy the season. Monsoni describes how the consequences played out in Milan, writing, But lo, the day following, just while the presumptuous confidence, nay, in many, the fanatical assurance prevailed that the procession must have cut short the progress of the plague, the mortality increased in every class, in every part of the city, to such a degree and with so sudden a leap that there was scarcely anyone who did not behold in the very procession itself the cause and occasion of this fearful increase. But, oh, wonderful and melancholy force of popular prejudices, the greater number did not attribute this effect to so great and so prolonged a crowding together of persons, nor to the infinite multiplication of fortuitous contact, but rather to the facilities afforded to the poisoners of executing their iniquitous designs on a large scale. It was said that, mixing in the crowd, they had infected with their ointment everybody they had encountered. But as this appeared neither a sufficient nor appropriate means for producing so vast a mortality, which extended itself to every rank, as apparently it had not been possible, even for an eye the most watchful and the most quick-sighted from suspicion, to detect any unctuous matter or spots of any kind during the march, recourse was had for the explanation of the fact to that other fabrication, already ancient and received at that time into the common scientific learning of Europe, of magical and venomous powders. It was said that these powders, scattered along the streets and chiefly at the places of halting, had clung to the trains of the dresses, and still more to the feet of those who had that day in great numbers gone about barefoot. That very day, therefore, of the procession, says a contemporary writer, Saw piety contending with iniquity, perfidy with sincerity, and loss with acquisition. It was, on the contrary, poor human sense contending with the phantoms it had itself created. During the spring and summer of 1630, plague sufferers sought refuge in the neighborhood around Via Laghetto. An area that housed workers from the city's most polluting industries, glassmaking, tanning, and charcoal burning, and already had a reputation for poverty, crime, and disease. According to tradition, while the plague devastated every other part of the city, the area around Via Laghetto was spared. Modern scholars and amateur historians have offered a variety of explanations. Some say it was the antiseptic properties of charcoal dust which seemed to settle everywhere in Via Laghetto. Others hypothesize that it was the marble dust, a byproduct of the construction of Milan's cathedral, that settled on the inhabitants' clothes and skin and made them impervious to the flea bites that spread plague. But some Milanese have yet another explanation. Despite the fear that witches were the cause of the plague in the city, some believed that one witch, who happened to live in Laghetto, Arima, was protecting her neighbors with magic. Rumors of Arima's mysterious occult doings abounded, alongside rumors of her ability to heal with potions and herbs. Unlike the typical image of the 17th century witch, and despite the routine executions of accused witches in Milan, Arima provided protection. In addition to keeping away the plague, She reportedly also defended her neighbors from the predations of the more dangerous witches that congregated some nights in Piazza della Vetra, the public square where the Inquisition executed convicted witches by burning. Arima's presence seems as good an explanation as any as to why that quarter of the city happened to be spared. Of course, others disagree. Nowadays, a large fresco featuring the Virgin Mary, commissioned by the charcoal burners in thanks for sparing their neighbourhood from plague, sits near the spot Arima once called home. In 1641, a decade after the plague subsided in Milan, the last two witches to be executed in the city were burned in Piazza della Vetra. No mention of Arima remains in the extant inquisitorial records, but that's not too surprising. All records of the Inquisition in Milan from 1314 to 1764 were burned by order of Emperor Joseph II of Austria in 1788. Still, if you ask certain Milanese, they'll tell you what they know in their hearts. Arima protected the Via Laghetto, and perhaps she protects it still. Despite these attempts at erasure, Italy's witches and their traditions live on. Modern neo-pagan movements in Italy encompass a wide variety of traditions and pantheons, and Milan still serves as a geographic center. Many modern Italian witches draw on both the Greco-Roman traditions of central and southern Italy and the Gallo-Celtic traditions of northern Italy. In Lombardy, the region surrounding Milan, the pre-Christian goddess Bellisama is thought to have been synthesized by the Middle Ages into the all-encompassing feminine protectress, the Virgin Mary, in the figure of the Mediterranean Madonna. But Italy's pagan traditions would enjoy a resurgence in the 19th century, thanks in part to American folklorist Charles Godfrey Leland, whose 1899 book *Aradia* or The Gospel of the Witches, purportedly documents the beliefs and practices of a group of witches in Tuscany. While scholars have called into question whether or not Leland's claims are true, Aradia would go on to deeply influence the modern Wiccan and Neo-Pagan movements. Leland claims to have derived the book from several sources, including a manuscript entitled The Vangelo, or Gospel, given to him by his witch informant Maddalena, and his own studies of Italian folklore and traditions. Leland's 15-chapter book claims to describe the traditional beliefs and practices of Tuscany's witches, which appear to center around the goddess or ancestral witch Aradia, whose goal was to liberate the peasantry by teaching them the art of witchcraft. Alongside spells, incantations, and enchantments, Leland's Aradia describes a mythos in which the Roman goddess of the moon, Diana, acts as queen of the witches and the primordial force that created the universe. Dividing herself into light and dark and giving birth to the god of the sun, Lucifer, whose name in Latin means bringer of light, she then couples with him and gives birth to Aradia. Aradia herself appears to be a version of the biblical Herodias, wife of King Herod, who conspired with her daughter Salome to kill John the Baptist. Later tradition held that she was condemned to wander as a spirit for her crimes, alighting on the earth to rest only between midnight and dawn. In Leland's retelling, Diana instructs Aradia, And thou shalt be the first of witches known, and thou shalt be the first of all in the world, and thou shalt teach the art of poisoning, of poisoning those who are great lords of all, Yea, thou shalt make them die in their palaces, and thou shalt bind the oppressor's soul with power. She then addresses the poor. Ye who are poor suffer with hunger keen, and toil in wretchedness, and suffer too full oft imprisonment. Yet with it all ye have a soul, and for your sufferings ye shall be happy in the other world, but ill the fate of all who do ye wrong. Finally, Aradia promises her followers that When I shall have departed from this world, whenever ye have need of anything, once in the month and when the moon is full, ye shall assemble in some desert place, or in a forest all together join to adore the potent spirit of your queen, my mother, great Diana. She who fain would learn all sorcery yet has not won its deepest secrets, them my mother will teach her. In truth all things as yet unknown, and ye shall all be freed from slavery, and so ye shall be free in everything." The book became an essential source for Gardnerian Wicca, Stregheria, and other traditions seeking evidence of ancient pagan traditions in Europe. The bulk of the text describes a tradition that blends the Roman pantheon with Christian themes. ...functioning as a female-centered, egalitarian religion... ...specifically counter to the patriarchal and authoritarian structure of Catholicism. Later authors have disputed its authenticity, however... ...claiming that the story of Aradia and her witches had a certain 19th century sensibility... ...and perhaps bore too much of Leland's Christianized cultural perspective. Despite the doubts around Leland's version of Italian witchcraft... Modern evidence of traditions that might be labelled witchcraft do exist. In addition to Lombardy and Tuscany, the northern Italian region of Piemonte has a magical community of its own. For centuries, the secluded village of Paroldo has enjoyed local fame for its masque, a collection of women thought to possess special knowledge and powers of healing. These good witches have provided cures for a variety of afflictions to residents and neighbors. The technique, as it's described by modern Maske, involves the chanting of prayers accompanied by cutting the air and using the energy transferred to them by their Maske ancestors to heal with their hands. Prayers and the sign of the cross break any ties between the patient's body and the evil influencing it. Dishes cooked by the masque are also said to have healing powers, especially those containing garlic. Nowadays, the village is home to Trattoria Salvetti, a restaurant that seeks to preserve the traditions of masque cooking, and a research center focused on the healing powers of herbs and plants. Today, the building Arima once called home is a bar and restaurant. Established in 1908, the Cantina Piemontese occupies the building where those who worked on the cathedral's construction formerly lived. You can sip cocktails inside the historic building or enjoy the serenity of its gardens. Aradia's influence continues to be felt in modern neo-paganism, especially in the traditions of gardnerian wicca, dianic wicca and stregaria. Her spirit of defiance and desire to liberate the oppressed from systemic injustice and inequality still inspire many modern pagans and witches. As for La Befana, she's still going strong. But thanks to the influence of American and British culture, Santa Claus or Father Christmas, Babbo Natale in Italian, Is beginning to encroach on La Befana's traditional territory. So next year, instead of leaving milk and cookies for Santa, why not leave out some salami and a bottle of wine for La Befana on the eve of Epiphany and see what happens? If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen and never miss a new episode. This episode was produced by me, with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. Special thanks to the Haunting Unearthly and Paranormal Stories podcast for sponsoring the creation of this episode, and as always, thanks to Enchanted's Patreon patrons for supporting the production of every episode. If you want to support Enchanted, please visit patreon.com enchantedpodcast or rate and review Enchanted on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. You can get in touch with me via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com or follow on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. As always, to learn more and to check out the sources for each episode, visit enchantedpodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted.